we're talking about the summer of love before we went to break. Uh, we probably should do, I think, um, something of a modern update to that story. A piece in New Scientist, June 17th issue by Sam Wong, talked, well, it was basically an analysis of what's called microdosing, noting how people are increasingly taking small amounts of psychedelics to up their game. The article claims, at least quoting from advocates, that um, taking a pinch of psychedelic drugs, adding it to your daily routine, doesn't send you tripping, but merely gives you a boost to improve your mood or performance. The article by Sam Wong notes that these the effects they report seem plausible, but since psychedelics are illegal in most countries, such claims have not been backed up by much research. The piece notes that you would be forgiven for thinking that your work performance might suffer under the influence of mind-warping illegal drugs, but notes that microdoses, about a tenth of the recreational dose, don't seem to induce hallucinations. Instead, people who do this report at internet forums anyway that they're happier, more creative, and more productive. They may say things look more beautiful than usual, but that's as trippy as it gets. It's noted in the piece that psychedelics have been linked with creativity since the 1960s when LSD was widely used by artists and musicians. James Fadiman, who's popularized the idea of microdosing in his 2011 book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, said that his colleagues gave LSD to engineers, mathematicians, and architects as they worked on professional problems they had been struggling with. It's claimed that they all performed better on tests after being given the drug, compared with an earlier sober session, and reported finding the experience helpful to the creative process. This line of research ended when LSD was made illegal in the late 1960s, but a recent revival has made progress in understanding how psychedelics act on the brain. For keeping score, LSD and psilocybin, the active ingredients in magic mushrooms, achieve most of their effect by binding to serotonin receptors responsible for mood and cognition. Earlier this year, a study found that part of the receptor closes on the LSD molecule like a lid, trapping the drug in place for hours, which may explain why it can have effects at very low doses. This is not an area that um, that I have much of an opinion on, which is an unusual thing for Radio Parallax, <laughs> since we generally serve a, a buffet of my opinions which, by the way, have been shown scientifically to be accurate at least 98% of the time. Of course, I am certain that 2% of the time I'm full of crap. I'm just not sure which 2%. Reminds me of my days back in medical school. The number I believe they threw out at the time was 10%, which was that 10% of what they were teaching us was dead wrong. They just weren't sure which 10%. With the wisdom of years, I suspect that figure was probably something more like 25% or more, but we'll let it go. If you have an opinion on microdosing, please share it with us by dropping us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We would love to hear from you. Speaking of pumping out a radio program, which we are continuing to do on a regular basis, I got quite a kick out of uh, an email I received from a friend uh, asking if I'd heard... Ira Flato's Science Friday, specifically the guest he had on, Sam Keen. Sam Keen has a new book titled Caesar's Last Breath. 
My friend asked if I'd heard of Sam Keen. I was proud to be able to report that we've had Mr. Keen on this program not once, not twice, but thrice, each for a different book of his, which have included The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons and The Disappearing Spoon. I believe the third one was The Violinist's Thumb. Anyway, Sam Keen, good author. I probably should get a hold of Caesar's Last Breath and see if we can have uh, Sam come on the show a fourth time. He's always been a great guest. I did note that the current issue of The Week magazine, as it does every week, asks an author or a prominent person to choose the best books they would comment on. And I would like to note for the record that Sam Keen picked six books, which for the record were Darwin's Dangerous Idea by Daniel Dennett, Consilience by Edward O. Wilson, The Baroque Cycle by Neil Stevenson, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again by David Foster Wallace, Childcraft, The How and Why Library, noted to be out of print, was described as a set of children's reference books divided by topic that Sam said his mother bought bought at a grocery store. Interesting. And finally, The Book of Barely Imagined Beings, a 21st Century Bestiary by Caspar Henderson. And I can't resist quoting from Keene. He notes that the book moves alphabetically from axolotl, which is a Mexican salamander, to zebrafish, with a new delight on every page. Keene says it's a perfect reminder of what biologist J.B.S. Haldane once said, that the universe is not only stranger than we imagine, it's stranger than we can imagine. Which I think will do quite nicely as our quote of the day. I believe Caesar's last breath is based on the premise that uh, a lung full of air contains the same relationship of molecules volume of molecules to the entire volume of the air in your breath of lung, as does your breath of lung to the entire atmosphere of the planet, which really kind of puts the size of molecules in perspective. Here's one we'll put out for you that we'll talk about on next week's show as a follow-up. Imagine that you had a mole. Remember your chemistry class? A mole of a liquid, let's say water, which will work out in the case of water to about Two-thirds of an ounce. But let's just say, let's start out with an ounce of water. If you start counting a molecule of water every second, how long would it take for you to count out the entire shot glass? If you remember Avogadro's number or care to look it up, you'll be able to derive the answer pretty quickly, and I think it will astonish you. It certainly astonished me. Anyway, we'll put that off uh, one week. You know, week in and week out, one of our favorite parts of this program is the good, the bad, and the ugly. So why don't we jump into that right at this juncture? All right, according to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for revisionist history. After Vladimir Putin disputed historical accounts that the 16th century Tsar Ivan the Terrible murdered his own son, suggesting that the story was concocted to slander Russia. Putin said, This has been a trend throughout our history because our vastness is feared by everyone. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for the Made in America concept after the White House launched 
Made in America Week to promote domestic products, despite the fact that 100% of Ivanka Trump's fashion goods and many other Trump-banded products are made overseas. Then-spokesman Sean Spicer said it would be inappropriate, quote-unquote, to comment on that contradiction. And it was an ugly week last week for Winnie the Pooh after Chinese authorities banned the figure from social media because of frequent unflattering comparisons between Winnie the Pooh and roly-poly Chinese President Xi Jinping. And I guess you could have to call it a good yet ugly week last week for dissenting opinions after a Washington, D.C. judge overturned the conviction of a political activist who was arrested by Capitol Police for laughing during Attorney General Jeff Sessions' confirmation hearing. The judge said the conviction was disconcerting. Even more disconcerting, we would like to add, is Jeff Sessions' effort to return us to... <laughs> The war on drugs, specifically the war on marijuana. Karen Gotch and Mark Maurer wrote, writing in thehill.com uh, a couple months back, noted that because of the war on drugs policies in this country, half, half of all federal inmates are primarily nonviolent, low-level drug offenders. And here's the one that gets me. More inmates are serving life sentences without parole for drug crimes than for murder. Of course, Sessions has recused himself from overseeing the Russian investigation, which has earned him the ire of his boss. And although we would not like to draw comparisons between (laughs) Donald Trump Jr. and the son of Ivan the Terrible, we would like to note, with no small amount of hilarity, the data, unconfirmed data, but, but I'm inclined to believe this, that Trump staffers will snidely refer to Donald Jr. as Fredo. Referring, of course, to the loser son in the Godfather series. The DailyBeast.com noted that during the election campaign, Donald Jr. frequently went off-message, likening Syrian refugees to poison Skittles and retweeting white supremacists. Described as chronically insecure, the president's oldest son probably took the Russian meeting that's gotten him in so much hot water to impress his dad, and which, of course, could end up causing major damage to the entire family. Molly Ball in TheAtlantic.com noted that when his eldest son was still a boy, Donald Trump was asked in a TV interview which of his children gave him the most trouble. Don, he shot back. It is worth noting that when his dad divorced his mother... Ivana, took up with Marla Maples back in 1990. A distraught Don Jr. refused to speak to his father for a year. You don't love us, you just love your money, he reportedly yelled at Trump. Later, while attending the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton College, Donald Jr. was frequently drunk and openly despised his dad, according to his friends anyway. During one visit, the elder Trump, enraged that his son wasn't wearing a suit, slapped him in the face. A former classmate there said after graduating, Don Jr. got sober, joined the family business, and quickly rose to be an executive vice president, though he reportedly never stepped out of the shadow of Trump's glamorous favorite child, Ivanka. And speaking of that 2016 election, according to the Wall Street Journal, there were nearly 150,000 attempts to penetrate South Carolina's voter registration system on election day. 
That's according to the South Carolina State Elections Commission. In Illinois, hackers hit the State Board of Elections five times per second for two weeks and ultimately got access to 90,000 voter records. This doesn't prove, of course, that anybody stole the 2016 election. But this correspondent remains suspicious. Oh, and speaking of marijuana, as we were a moment ago, here's a rather amusing story. Evidently, Nevada state officials approved emergency regulations last week to help solve the acute marijuana shortage (laughs) developed just days after Nevada legalized recreational weed. Lines of customers have snaked outside the doors of the state's 47 licensed dispensaries since legal marijuana was made available for sale July 1st, with reported 40,000 transactions in the first weekend. The surge in demand caught sellers off guard, and with display cases emptying, they lobbied for a change to strict weed distribution rules. Under the referendum approved by voters, only liquor wholesalers were allowed to move weed from growers to dispensaries, and none were licensed when the law took effect. After the Nevada Tax Commission unanimously voted last week to expand the distribution licenses, dispensaries were able to restock. Nevada officials expect marijuana sales to generate $100 million in tax revenue over the next two years. And speaking of goofball wrinkles in politics, which we do every time the name Trump pops up, how about this item, which comes from the gossip section of our favorite magazine, The Week, which we've been relying on rather heavily this summer. Here's the story. Republican Caitlyn Jenner this week said she's considering a run for the U.S. Senate in California. The perception of the Republican Party, she said, is that they're all about rich white guys trying to make money. This came in a radio interview. She added that she hopes to help make it the party of equality. Although Jenner, age 67, voted for President Trump, she has openly criticized his administration for rolling back Obama-era protections for transgender students and has worked with the American Unity Fund to lobby GOP lawmakers on behalf of LGBT issues. Can I do a better job from the outside, the Olympic gold medalist asks, or are you better from the inside? Her Senate talk comes a week after musician Kid Rock set up a website devoted to a possible run against Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow in the state of Michigan. What's next? O.J. Simpson opens up an exploratory committee to run for senator in Florida? Who knows? Or is Ted Nugent likely to run for the role of, say, Reichsmarschall? Or maybe the Minister of Propaganda? We just don't know. But speaking of the Minister of Propaganda, evidently Ann Coulter has launched a Twitter war against Delta Airlines for bumping her from a reserved aisle seat to a window seat. Flying from New York to Florida, the six-foot-tall Coulter had reserved an aisle seat with extra legroom, but the airline said she was inadvertently moved to a window seat to accommodate other passengers. The vitriolic pundit called Delta the worst airline in the world. We would hasten to add that Delta Airlines is not the worst airline in the world. Although I don't know for sure that they've improved things, yours truly refused to fly on Burma Air, some decades ago when during the course of one year they lost two of their five aircraft. I thought a 40% attrition rate was just more than I wanted to face. 
Anyway, in the Twitter war with Ann Coulter versus Delta, she tweeted that if it was so important for the dachshund-legged woman to take my seat, she should have booked the seat in advance. And no, we have no idea what she meant by a dachshund-legged woman. We surmise that the woman had short legs as opposed to the lanky Ms. Coulter. For her part, Coulter went on to compare airline employees to prison guards and East German police. Delta did refund Coulter her $30 for the seat downgrade and stuck up for itself in tweets saying that your insults about our customer and employees are unacceptable and unnecessary. You know, if you, if you get right down to it, the phrase unacceptable and unnecessary pretty much summarizes Ann Coulter. And to descend further into petty squabbles and political idiocy, we have this. According to Rachel Johnson, writing in The Mail on Sunday in the UK, it was not quite the end of civilization, but it came close. Apparently, Ms. Johnson was watching the BBC's live coverage of the House of Commons, and she's a braver person than I, when the shocking scene unfolded. One parliamentarian from the ruling Conservative Party had spotted that a member of the opposition Liberal Democrats was wearing an open-necked shirt and no tie. She evidently writes that the conservative rightfully complained about this apparent breach of Commons rules to the chamber speaker, John Burko. The speaker then stood up, chest swelling like a powder pigeon, and declared that while male parliamentarians should wear business-like attire, ties were not obligatory. Johnson said, the horror. How very dare one little man suddenly decide to lower sartorial standards in the Palace of Westminster, the mother of Parliament, in the sacred chamber where the world watches Western democracy at its best at work. Noting that ties are the universally acknowledged signifier of male seriousness, they denote and command respect, she added, don't think for a second that men will be freer if they cast off their ties. No, they will face the same dread Pandora's box of choice Women confront daily and will inflict upon us a ghastly gallery of casual alternatives, like Hawaiian shirts and safari suits. She added, ties may be boring, but they make men look smart. They must certainly be worn in Parliament. And no, we don't know if Rachel Johnson actually believes that or not. On this program, we have commented favorably on the island republic of Kiribati, for its foresight many years ago in banning the tie as, quote, a weapon of Western oppression, unquote. And evidently with record temperatures in store for the next week in, in the center of California, our good news section for today's program comes from the week's tip of the week, which was how to get the best from a car's air conditioning. The first piece of advice was don't bother to pre-cool. Air conditioning works far better when the vehicle's in motion, even when it's still, because the faster the engine turns, the faster the air compressor runs. So jump in, start driving, crank up the fans, open the rear windows for 10 to 20 seconds. There's no better way to vent out hot air. We would like to add that whoever wrote that probably doesn't live in California's Central Valley. When you get in a hot greenhouse effect heated car during the summer, Open all of the windows, and you can turn on the AC, but replacing 150-degree air with 104-degree air is still a giant improvement. 
But here's something I confess I did not know. If you select any temperature in your car's AC above the air conditioning's coldest setting, the system then has to warm air that it has already cooled. So if you're chilly, just lower the fan speed. Can't believe I didn't know that. The piece also notes that the automatic stop-start systems common in new cars, well, they do save fuel, but they shut down both the engine and the air compressor, causing the cabin of the vehicle to heat up quickly. Who in the engineering department failed to notice that was going to be a problem? And speaking of problems of probably two or three orders of magnitude beyond that of a car's air conditioning, we have this statistic, which I may have used a week or two ago, but even if I did, it's worth mentioning again. Here's the deal. Dozens of clinical studies have been identified as having statistical patterns that are unlikely to appear by chance, suggesting they may be incorrect or falsified. A review of 5,087 clinical trials published during the past 15 years uncovered 90 studies with unlikely patterns. Personally, we suspect that it's a lot higher rate than 0.2%. We'll continue to see what pops up. And here's an item that is, uh, well, it's not really ominous, but it's mildly irritating. Uh, Last June 3rd, the object, the Kuiper Belt object, 2014 MU69, passed in front of a star, which is, <laughs> I suppose, not exactly earth-shaking news. But it turns out that NASA's New Horizons, after having passed Pluto, has that Kuiper Belt object in the crosshairs. It's supposed to rendezvous with it, I think, in January of 2019? Not sure. Anyway, the object did pass in front of a star, which allows NASA and anybody else who's got the data in hand to look for dust or rings that might cause a problem because the New Horizons spacecraft is set to whiz past this object really close at hand. It's not a large object, so it has to get in pretty tight to, you know, gain useful information. And even though, you know, last month it passed in front of a star, I haven't seen any data published yet on what they found. If you know what they found, that's another reason to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We may have to contact our friends at the Planetary Society and see what they know. Speaking of the Planetary Society, we would uh, recommend you check out their wonderful publication, The Planetary Report. The current issue has some wonderful pictures of the Juno mission's uh, visit to Jupiter. The Developments in Space Science section by Bruce Betts. Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, and who has made multiple appearances as a Radio Parallax guest, uh, lists a five-step method of defending our world from asteroid impacts. Dr. Betts uh, delivered a talk on this to the Planetary Defense Conference in Tokyo in May of this year. According to Bruce Betts, the Planetary Society's five-step plan to prevent asteroid impacts, well, the first four are pretty straightforward. Find them, track them, characterize them, and deflect them. Part four is a little bit problematic. There are various possible techniques in differing states of readiness for deflecting an asteroid, but they all, all need some development and testing. But I did like step number five, coordinate and educate. Noting that asteroid impact is an international issue that requires international coordination. I might substitute step five as kiss your ass goodbye. Because if an asteroid's coming in pretty hot and heavy and we don't deflect it, well, there's there's, there's just going to be a bit of a mess. 
on a more serious note, we we certainly recommend uh, that NASA and the government spare no expense to do what it can to learn how to deflect asteroids. It's one of those things where it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And the same issue of Planetary Report, there was a rather fascinating little piece by Jason Davis about how possibly a planetary society-funded citizen scientist helped find one of the Earth's biggest impact craters. Some of this is pretty tentative, but if you look on the map of South America where the Falkland Islands are located, and you move just a little bit west of the islands, turns out on the ocean floor there, there's a big ring. It's been noted as a gravitational anomaly from satellite data, and it certainly seems to resemble the Chicxulub crater off of uh, Mexico's Yucatan in many respects. Curiously, this crater tentatively has been aged at about 250 million years, which makes it a candidate for the great extinction of the Permian era, where 96% of life on Earth died off. We don't know what caused that extinction. There's been speculation about an asteroid impact, but nobody really knows. This one's going to be interesting as it unfolds. And yes, Mr. Merlin, I, I suppose that does suggest... Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire as outro music. And uh, let's close with just one more doomsday scenario. Writing in New York Magazine, David Wallace Wells suggested that however alarmed you are about climate change, you're not alarmed enough. He notes that after years of attacks from climate skeptics, the scientific community has become overly cautious in its predictions of how climate change may impact life on Earth and how quickly. Beyond the climatologist's public reticence, however, he notes there's growing evidence that unless we act now to dramatically cut carbon emissions by the year 2100, the human race could be living, or rather dying, on an uninhabitable planet. To which we would add, well, yeah. You know, we really can't end the show on something that much of a downer, so let's, let's, let's see if we can pull something out of 5,000 side-splitting jokes and one-liners, shall we? Let's do two or three. Here's one for all the fans of the Oakland Raiders. Visitors to Las Vegas are divided into two groups, the haves and the hads. And certainly one to close with, which is karaoke bars combine two of the world's great evils, people who shouldn't drink and people who shouldn't sing. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. Some might say the light version. I am your faithful host and servant, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. Love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring